shopping at home. Yeah, we've made a shopping centre at home, especially for you. It's a bit hard because we can't take you to the shops, so we thought we'd bring the shops to you. <laughs> okay. This is the Dementia Podcast. I'm Colm Cunningham. You've just heard a short excerpt from the documentary Everybody's Oma. In our last episode, we spoke a little about the changes that can happen, the progression of dementia, how it affects people differently, and also how things can change for the person with dementia and their family, and even community perceptions. In Everybody's Oma, we see what some of those impacts can be, both on the person living with dementia and the people around them. It's a cold night in Melbourne, and Ilsa's at the screening for the documentary as it opens at the Melbourne International Film Festival. I haven't really been to the cinema much in the last five years. I had a baby who always needed me at bedtime, and then there were two years of pandemic lockdowns. So even the experience of arriving in my plush seat feels a little overwhelming. As the documentary starts, I fall in love with Omar's delighted smile. I'm completely swept into Jason and Megan's lives as they fight in the kitchen about whether to keep Omar's cat, take Omar out to fancy dinners and navigate the relentless, heartbreaking, but also joyful task of loving and caring for her as she inevitably deteriorates. After the credits roll to a stop and the lights come on, the crowd definitely has a kind of collective shell shock. The film was revealing and deeply personal, and towards the end, it was hard not to let the emotions spill out into the audience. Jason, Megan and the crew of the film have a Q&A after, and this releases a large amount of that charged emotional atmosphere. The crowd filters out of the cinema, and I wait for Jason and Megan. Like Colm said, it's pretty cold. And so we try to find a quiet spot to record indoors. But a Saturday night in Melbourne City is not a quiet affair. Eventually, we relent and head outside to a cafe across the road, which allows us a table outside with the music turned almost all the way down. Huddled in the corner, near a table of raucous young men, we start chatting. Jason's jacket and bag providing a makeshift noise shield for the mics. The simplest way that I would describe it is just being playful. We had to mm. unadult ourselves and, and try and think back. We were looking at our kids. We were looking at what Artie was doing, what Evie was doing, you know, six and three years old. What were they doing with Omar that she was enjoying and, and how could we mirror that ourselves? And we discovered pretty quick that if we just got over ourselves of the, the worries of the pandemic and the complexities of caring at home and we just played. Mm. And, you know, whether that was Megan and Omar and Evie sitting at a table playing a game of Go Fish for an hour. Um, or making fake cup of tea or playing with Play-Doh. Sorting or, Lego or whatever yeah, it was, you know. Sorting Lego. Yeah, creating lots of little <laughs> oh activities. That, Hashtag mum life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much sorting Lego. Omar was, was really good. Like her dexterity was um, really shot. So yeah. she would sort all the colours for us. And we'd make these amazing things because you could actually find the bits that you needed. Um, and that was easier for her to do with her arthritic little fingers. So and that would have been was integral. great kind of OT for her as well, yeah. doing that kind of yeah. work. Yeah. 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 And I, I think we sort of gamified it a little. 
for yeah. us the playtime became a break time in the family. Yeah. You know, we didn't have to have some elaborate conversation about something. We'd just sit and be present in the moment. Yeah. Uh, and regardless of the ages of who were sitting around that activity, it was like something we could all take part in. Mm. Um, you know, when another example is when um, Oma was having falls and we, she couldn't go and do a gardening outside anymore. So then we started doing gardening in little teacups. So we'd find oh. spare teacups and we just put rocks in it and sand and some little succulents and but just that activity of doing that. And then it, it's the little story that would unfold as we're doing that, little conversation that would play out. Those little things are the, the, the memories I think that I hang on to the, the, the tightest because they're the most special, yeah. those little benign moments that just popped up in the day. I wanted to know how it started for them when Omar's diagnosis became something that they were more involved in. So when that diagnosis happened, did you have a sense of what it was going to mean for you? For your- Not really. I mean, neither of us really had a, a, an experience with dementia ourselves. I mean, we, we kind of had a very broad understanding what most in the community would have. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, you just become forgetful. Yeah. Um, we didn't really even do too much reading around it. It was just like, we just get used to this and it's just we just have to be her memory. You yeah. know, we just have to yeah. remind her and prompt her and surround her with lots of love, yeah. which I think is is a great picture to have and what most people would think, you know. Um, And perhaps if you knew the whole picture right from the get-go, you may not be as keen or as as willing to or, uh, you know, you might be more scared about entering that kind of a care model because, uh, you know, it's like anything. If you, if someone shows you all the scary stuff right up front, it might become more challenging for you to be able to find ways to, you know, take that responsibility on. So I'm a little bit more glad that we kind of had that sort of naive perspective almost when we started our journey. What Jason is saying here is something I've heard many times before. There is the perception that the knowledge of what the future holds can be an overwhelming and a frightening prospect. We saw that in Ilsa's conversation with the young people at the school and with Jim not actively seeking information after diagnosis. Yeah, we definitely had a few conversations. We had a really good relationship with the family GP. That GP had been the family GP for years and years and years. Um, And uh, he was more used to... The family GP was used to me coming in and sitting with mum during her consult. So there was a... A growing dependency, I think, that he could see in those yeah. visits. Um, you know, I had to manage Oma's medication or make sure that I was coming in and explaining what was going on health-wise with Oma to, to give him the full picture. And as time grew on, he, as time evolved, he could see that that was a growing dependency. So I, I think, I mean, he pretty much knew the signs of what was going on as well. Um, he was just waiting for us to come to the, the, the party and say, look, I, th- I think we want to explore this a bit deeper. So he yeah. did it the right way. I was really, really happy with the way that that diagnosis happened yeah. and, and how he supported that. In their documentary, and as we listen to Jason and Megan, it's clear that community care played an essential part in how their young family was able to have Oma live with them. So, yeah, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of administration, um, a lot of the boring stuff that goes along with caring for someone with dementia, a lot of that f- sort of fell on me. Um, and then Jason had this really kind of creative kind of caring role in our, in our paradigm that meant that Oma was always sort of, her, her happiness cup was always filled and I feel like I was probably part of her wellbeing cup. Like, and we, we were able to work that together quite, quite well. There is a series of scenes in the documentary where Megan is trying to organise respite care for Omar. She calls and calls, 
pacing the backyard and being rejected over and over again. And at the same time, you can see the other work of care that still needs to be done around her. The children need feeding, the dishes need doing, Olma needs attention. There's so much logistics that need to be done to ensure that people are cared for properly. And it all takes time. Then uh, from just outside our little ecosm of our own house, we had my mum and dad that were really integral in a lot of that care. Um, Neighbours, Stella down the road at the local cafe. Um, Yeah, I think it's quite incredible, like how many people you need around you to make a decision like this work well. And I think that that was the thing that really became very clear for us was our reliance on our immediate neighbours to either side, our reliance on the people in the local shops, the chemists. Um, right to like it was such a broad circle of people that we were really, really dependent on as a family in taking on those care decisions. This conversation with Jason and Megan was one of my first on the podcast. I realize now, looking back at it, how so many of my following conversations with various experts or even listening to Column was foreshadowed here. When Colm spoke with Mary Marshall on design and how the environment can be enabling and disabling, I saw that here. Jason and Megan went to great pains to ensure that Omar had that kind of independence, even while living with them. That bit we heard right at the start of the episode was about how they tried to maintain Omar's routine of going to the shops by recreating it in their home. But there were times that this was a huge challenge as well. So you made a decision to bring Omar into your home and um, I was just, you know, I was really interested watching, how, trying to figure out how your home was laid out because she's got her own little kind of apartment in your home. Yeah, we had a granny flat. And she's got a doorbell. Yeah, she got a doorbell. So we put that doorbell there as a way so she could maintain her independence in her own space but knowing that there was a really easy way of getting help really quickly when she needed us. Yeah. And we figured a doorbell sounded like a more friendly sound than yeah. a buzzer or mm. some kind of alarm sound or something like that. So, mm. yeah, that, that doorbell uh, was, was a sound we became very used to hearing <laughs> yeah. in time. Yeah. And so uh, as she kind of, as her memory deteriorated, did she keep pressing that doorbell? Was there yeah. a point where she would just open the door and come yeah. down the stairs? Yeah. yeah, we had, two. Yeah, we had yeah. both of those, yeah, yeah. So um, the, the doorbell was really two for because um, we did have those adjoining stairs, so it was a safety thing. I think I was just going to add the fact that it's funny because we, we think, you know, we'll add a doorbell to the internal door and that'll make it easy for her to get help. But then we realised, well, that's something we're going to teach what yeah. she needs to learn yeah. how to use as well. Yeah. It was yeah. it was an odd thing, right? So it was like whenever she'd come walking down the stairs unassisted, we'd be like, oh, Omar, you've got to press the bell and we'll help you down the stairs, you know. Oh, what bell, what bell, you know. So remembering that, that you know, she had a limited capacity to learn that yes. new routine as well. Yes. So we had to surround that activity with with lots of help and lots of colour, lots of signage, um, even having an, an internal lock on the the door joining our granny her home uh, her, her granny flat and our home together, so that there was a just a pause there for her to stop and go. Oh, that's right, I got to press the bell. Yeah. There's a big arrow there. I press the bell, and then they'll come. That's a little gut wrenching moment. Yeah. Watching it's very you, controversial. Megan, yeah. Through that lock on the yeah, yeah. door and just 
having got to that point in the documentary, yeah. you can tell it's what's needed in terms yeah. of practicality, but it's just kind of devastating. It is devastating. Yeah. Well, safety, you know. Like, yeah, we couldn't believe that she'd found her way through complete darkness yeah. down a set of very dangerous stairs yeah. into our house and was wandering around in complete darkness at 2am one morning. I suppose when you're close to someone who's experiencing dementia, there are a whole series of moments where you see that person losing their independence. And for lots of us, there's a horror around that. It reminds me of the moment with my own nana when she couldn't be in charge of her sleeping pills anymore and was told she had to take them at 8pm before the nurse left for the night. I remember the look on her face when she realised she would no longer have her evenings. One of the things I've been looking for as I do interviews for this podcast is times and places that people feel independent and make choices but are kept safe. In Omar's case, one time this happens is actually when she goes into residential care. So then the end of the film, she's just moved into respite care. Um, and I guess you can really tell, uh, it looked to me like, that was going to work for her. You can kind of see design-wise, mm. again, just thinking about the design of a space and how that's going to work for someone who doesn't have memory. Do you want to what, – how was it when she moved? Look, we, we tried to make her, her room like a safe haven and we tried to design the interior of that room with her furniture and her photos and her keepsakes in pretty much the same layout as what she had in her granny flat. And we we figured by creating a that a, a, an environment or a room as familiar as possible to her as what she'd lived in at home, that that would give her a safe haven. And it did. As soon as she walked in, pretty much from the first minute she walked in that room, she thought she was actually back in her granny flat. Yeah, you can see it in the documentary. Yeah. It's like her body feels relaxed in yeah. the room. Exactly. And that gave us confidence then straight away. That was a huge... Um, lift for our spirits when we saw her respond to that. She had beautiful natural light in her room. She had a, a gorgeous little balcony. She had a good view to a garden. So for me, all the things that uh, she really valued and and had grown accustomed to having at home were replicated in that environment. And, and that went a long way towards giving her confidence in, in that space mm. and trust in the people that were around her. Oma passed away at the start of 2022 and Jason and Megan have not only shared the story of Oma's life with dementia but also the pain and impact of her loss on their family. Coping with the loss of a loved one with dementia is so hard and for the carer who has spent so much of their time being present it's an important topic to discuss. Ilsa asked me about this in one of our chats. I guess the other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, just culturally how we cope with big bad things, you know, like death and, the, you know, mm-hmm. when big bad things happen to people um, and for some people it's too much and they want to turn away or they don't, they feel like they don't know what to do and they feel like they're not yeah. going to be the right person to, to actually be there. I think one of the other things this is triggering because you've obviously talked about the fact that, um, you know, the person with dementia is likely to die before their care. And the other part of the shrinking world is that when, when they are left alone, when, when their loved one has died, it's really challenging because their world has shrunk and the people around them who are still supporting them 
their world has been defined by the care of the, their loved one. Mm. Uh, and I don't think we do enough uh, to, uh, as a society, to support them in what next. Mm. Here in the UK, Sheffield University did a really brilliant project where it brought together carers six weeks post the loss of their loved one to help them with that transition, to think about, do you want to um, put that chapter of your life aside now? How do we help you move on to the next chapter? Or do mm -hmm. you want to be a campaigner? Um, do you want to go into caring? You know, so, and I, I think that that's one of the things that we shortchange um, uh, carers on is how do we support them when they've given so much yes. in supporting the person they love in their lives yes. post that. And now that particular role is over. So now what? This is the last episode in this 2022 season of the Dementia Podcast. We hope that you find the stories, insights, and content that we've shared useful and informative. For the Dementia Podcast team, we're just getting started. In our next season, we look towards care and the many forms that it might take. We hope that you'll join us on this journey. The Dementia Podcast is produced by Joel Martin. Editing by Sally Grosvenor. Mixing and technical support for the Dementia Podcast is done by Neil Blanco. Fact-checking and research by Gina Perello. Dr. Norelio manages the music team and is also the composer for this episode. Composition for the series is supervised by Erin McKellar, who's the composer of the Dementia Podcast theme. Our website is DementiaPodcast.com. To keep in touch, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Dementia underscore Centre or email us on your thoughts at hello at DementiaCentre.com. The Dementia Podcast is a production by Hammond Cares Dementia Centre.